Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices. I'm Bryony Merritt. It's that time of year again when Birkbeck School of Arts opens its doors to the public to give them a chance to experience some of the vibrancy and creativity of research and teaching in the arts at Birkbeck. It's almost time for Arts Week 2017. From the 15th to the 19th of May, the school will host over 50 lectures, performances, screenings, book launches, workshops and discussions, featuring contributions from Birkbeck's own academics and guest artists and scholars from all over the world. You can see the full programme of events at www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash artsweek. But today I'm speaking to some of the event organisers to give you a taste of what you can expect. First up, it's Dr Leslie Topp from the Department of History of Art. Leslie is calling in from her home, so hopefully the audio quality is going to work. Hi, is that Leslie? Yes, it is. Hi, Leslie, it's Bryony. Hi there. Thanks for talking to us today. Uh, you're involved in the Landscape and Power event on Thursday, the 18th of May. What do you and your event co organisers mean by the politics of landscape? What we mean by the politics of landscape is that uh, when people these days look at landscape in detail in academic studies. They try to go beyond um, an understanding of landscape as something that is just pleasing to look at and really try to understand uh, how um, uh, all sorts of factors of power and territory and uh, the, the um, and kind of rhetorical persuasion of groups and this kind of thing, how that all comes into how landscape is designed too. And uh, the, the three speakers will be each speaking about quite fraught moments in certain national histories and how that then plays out in the way that the landscapes of the, of the particular geographic areas they're talking about um, were designed and then changed over time as well. And the, the places they're talking about and the points in history are quite diverse. Um, and what do these times and places in particular show us about the politics of landscape without asking you to preempt what your colleagues are planning to say, of course? Yeah, and, and I, um, I don't know all that much about what they're going to say, but I, and I very much look forward to hearing about their research. But I can give, a, give you a sense of why each moment um, seems particularly rich in terms of the things that it will offer. So, so the first speaker, uh, Shati Chattopadhyay, um, is an expert on colonial architecture and landscape in India in the 19th century. Um, and she'll, from what I understand, she'll be talking about this moment in the mid-19th century, in the 1850s, when there was um, a very famous uprising uh, and an effort to, um, on the part of the, the local Indian populations to uh, uprise and to, to rebel against um, the British colonial forces. Um, and this was a, a, a major, very traumatic event. It was an uprising that was put down quite brutally. Um, and in the aftermath of that, in the second half of the 19th century, various locations where the, where the kind of key points of these battles, these military conflicts happened, were then recreated as memorial landscapes. Um, so uh, they, they were particular urban centers. Look now is one, for instance, where um, there were parks that were uh, that were uh, put in place uh, where certain kind of uh, killings had happened, especially where um, British colonial people had lost their lives. Um, and so there, there's a, a highly kind of political um, program of how to remember these events 
uh, and very much the victor's uh, point of view. Um, and so you get things like it, um, it, Native Indian uh, landscapes being recreated as rose gardens, as typically English rose gardens and things like that. So that's what she'll be discussing. And then, um, and then we move from the 19th to the mid-20th century uh, with a discussion by David Haney of the University of Kent of the, the Nazi cultural landscape. Um, and people might be familiar with um, the kinds of very uh, uh, bombastic architectural plans that, that the Nazis had. Albert Speer is a famous figure who was an architect and was very close to Hitler. And there are images people might have seen of the plans for Berlin, for instance, that would have knocked huge new boulevards through the center of Berlin and built absolutely massive um, kind of gathering places for speeches from the Fuhrer and things like this. And what David Haney is looking at is how that type of, um, of a, a kind of la la language of power in architecture also took place in landscape design. And like the architecture, it was often things that were planned and not necessarily implemented. But some things were implemented. So, so even the Autobahn system, the system of motorways that's very famous in Germany that was established under the Nazis, that can be seen as a kind of effort to uh, design the landscape in a certain way and link key sites to each other. Sites like the Olympic site outside of Berlin um, and uh, the... Um, the Nuremberg rally grounds, which were another famous site where many of the party rallies were held. Um, so it's those individual sites, but it's also how they were linked together across the German countryside that's of interest to him. And then our final example is, is something much more recent um, from just the past, uh, past 10 years, really, um, that has to do with how major traumatic events um, of the last 10 years have been commemorated through uh, landscape interventions. Uh, and Joel McKim, my colleague here at Birkbeck, who um, is in the Department of, of um, Film, Media, and Cultural Studies, will be looking at two different landscapes, one in Norway, uh, this, the island where many young people were murdered by a far-right um, terrorist there, uh, and then uh, the uh, so he's looking at how a park has been designed there. Um, it's shown on the image that we're using for the advertising, a park that is supposed to recall that very traumatic event. Um, and then in outside of, or just on the edge of New York City, within New York City, but um, in one of the outlying areas on Staten Island, uh, there's a, a park uh, with a memorial, and it's, it's an old landfill site where the, um, the, the debris from 9-11 from was all transported, and many of the human remains were identified um, and uh, and were dealt with there. And there may still well be fragmentary human remains that are part of this um, this load of debris that has now been covered over by a park. So Joel will be talking about um, the 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 politics that go into how to commemorate these very recent events through landscape design and park design. Right, thanks for that. It sounds like a really thought-provoking event and something that might make attendees start looking at their own environment in a different way. Very much so, yes. I think it will be one of those events that, um, having heard about these, these three examples, you'll understand those more, but, the, but you'll, also get a sense, you'll also kind of look around the London landscape, which you know, London is famous as a place of open spaces and parks and green areas all of which have their own very complex histories and shouldn't be just 
taken for granted as um, something that's a, an unalloyed good, although of course there are many good things about all those parks and open spaces. But they're there for reasons, and they're full of commemorative um, statues and names, and, uh, and they have uh, interesting access arrangements sometimes. So, um, so yes, all around us, wherever we live, we get landscapes that are highly meaningful and political in these ways. Great. Thanks for talking to us today, Leslie. On Tuesday the 16th of May, we're partnering with Waterstones Gower Street for one of our Arts Week events, a workshop on 50 years of the third policeman by Flann O'Brien. I spoke to Dr Joseph Brooker from Birkbeck's Department of English and Humanities to find out more about what attendees at the workshop can expect. Hi Joe, thank you for talking to us. First of all, for those of us who are unfamiliar with Flann O'Brien and his work, could you just introduce us to the author a little, please? Yes, Flann O'Brien uh, was born in uh, 1911, died in 1966, so he's an Irishman of the 20th century. He was from Straban, uh, on what's around about what's nowadays the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But he um, moved to Dublin and uh, made himself a great Dubliner throughout the middle of the 20th century. So he's very much a Dublin writer. Uh, he's of the generation that comes after people like James Joyce, W.B. Yeats. He's of the same kind of generation as Samuel Beckett. So he fits into a certain kind of mid-century period of Irish literature, modern literature in the 20th century. Um, one of the great things about Flann O'Brien, but that's also uh, makes him quite tricky to talk about, is that he had lots of names. Uh, so Flann O'Brien wasn't his real name. His real name was Brian O'Nolan. Also, uh, that itself comes some, sometimes with different Irish pronunciations. But um, he took on the name Flann O'Brien as a novelist. But he also became very well known under another name, which was Miles Nogopoline, which was Irish for Miles of the Little Horses. Um, another pseudonym, which he had borrowed from a play from the 19th century. And he used that particular name uh, when he wrote a newspaper column in the Irish Times, which he did from 1940 until his death in 1966. And that name is quite important because for many Irish people in particular, that's actually the name he, the work that's best known. Because for many years, people would read him in the Irish Times, not every day, but maybe something like two or three times a week, he would write this comic column, which was quite surreal and uh, uh, satirical and sometimes quite um, uh, e experimental in some ways. And he, he the Irish people came to know him as Miles. He was almost like a public figure in the way that you know someone like Terry Wogan later became uh, for for a British audience. And I, I, I perhaps I make that connection because Wogan was a big fan of Miles actually. And Wogan back in the day in the, in the seventies and eighties used to read out some of Flann O'Brien's old radio, uh, sort of Flann O'Brien's old newspaper columns on on the radio. So he was trying to carry on that. Uh, that tradition. So Flann O'Brien, a man of many names and many, many faces, many identities in a way, but this particular novel that we're going to talk about, The Third Policeman, did come out under the name uh, Flann O'Brien, but it didn't come out till after his death, which is another story. So as you've said, this event focuses specifically on The Third Policeman. 
Um, and why have you chosen this book in particular, this event? What makes it stand out amongst uh, O'Brien or O'Nolan's other yeah. works? He died appropriately on April Fool's Day 1966 and 50 years on. We uh, did a workshop last year uh, about his first novel, which is called At Swim Two Birds. That came out in 1939. Third Policeman wasn't actually published until 1967, so we've actually got another 50-year anniversary here, uh, with 2017 marking 50 years since this remarkable novel appeared. And that's actually a quite an interesting thought, that it's 50 years that this novel has been read, has been influencing people, has been uh, have taken up by other writers who may have um, drawn inspiration and excitement from it uh, all around the world. So um, it's, it's 50 years of Third Policeman. There's, the story there is um, the novel was actually written in 1939, straight after his first novel, At Swim Two Birds. Um, and it could, if all had been well, have been published quite quickly in 1940 by the same publisher, that's Longmans, a London publisher. But they rejected the novel. Um, which nowadays looks rather like the people who uh, rejected the Beatles, you know, because um, we now look at this as a great novel and you'd be uh, crazy not to publish it. But Longmans turned it down and they said, well, we thought the author should be uh, less fantastic than in his previous novel, and I'm, I'm afraid he's actually been more fantastic, and this won't do. So they, um, they turned it down, and Flann O'Brien, or Brian O'Nolan, reacted to this very badly. He was very disheartened and rather than sort of taking it somewhere else and saying, well, maybe another publisher will take it, he, he became, he seems to have completely sort of lost confidence or lost the will to publish it and um, hid it away, the, hid the manuscript away at home, it seems, in a dresser and um, started telling people that he'd lost the manuscript and that it was... Uh, it no longer existed, and um, uh, he even told people that he'd been, I think, driving around a motoring trip in the county Donegal, and that the um, uh, the <laughs> he left the boot of the car open, and the manuscript had blown out of the back of the car, page by page, uh, which turns out not to have been true at all. The manuscript was just sitting at home in a cupboard the whole time. It was only after his death in 1966, his wife, Evelyn O'Nolan, <laughs> simply went to the cupboard, took the manuscript out, sent it to a, a publisher, and they immediately published it, and it came out in 1967. So what is it that gives this novel particular significance? Um, and you already alluded to the fact that it's been inspiring mm. writers around the world for 50 years, so w w what is its significance within broader Irish literature mm. and world literature? I think a simple way to describe this novel might be something like Alice in Wonderland meets Kafka in the middle of Ireland. Uh, and that's, um, that's a pretty strange and exciting and intriguing prospect if you uh, think about it immediately. And uh, I think that this novel very much lives up to that, the standards of, of intrigue that that would promise. Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll, because of the incredible, uh, strange things that happen in this novel. It's a very surreal novel. Um, just as Alice goes through her world and encounters um, you know, a caterpillar smoking a hookah or you know, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party or whatever, I mean, there's equally bizarre things in this novel for the narrator who wanders around the Irish Midlands 
this uh, sort of rural landscape encountering uh, bizarre things, bizarre people who, who say things that are really mind-bending. So um, it, it really is, uh, as they may have said in the 60s about Alice, it really is a trip, a trippy kind of novel in a way that sort of uh, stretches the imagination, stretches the understanding to, to conceptualise some of the things that are said and pictured and discussed in this novel. Um, the policemen are in there, they're very important, obviously that's what the title alludes to. Uh, the narrator um, comes, as he wanders through uh, this strange rural landscape, comes up to a, a police station uh, and meets the local policemen in this, in this strange world. And they are very bizarre characters who do bizarre things. For instance, one of them, uh, rather than being out catching criminals or anything, he spends his time making uh, wooden chests and each chest is smaller than the last and can be put inside uh, the previous chest, like sort of Russian dolls, as it were. And they get infinitely smaller. And so over several pages, we, we get a description of, of the, the, the increasing smallness of these chests so that they are invisible, they can't be seen, and you need to have uh, a huge sort of microscope the size of the room to, to look at them. Uh, and yet somehow he's still able to make these invisible chests because he's got, uh, you know, tiny tools which are equally invisible to make them. Well, that's actually very hard to uh, visualise. And the book is full of things that are sort of like described in a very coherent way, yet seem like they couldn't possibly exist. And how could that possibly happen? And how can we picture that? So that's the kind of thing... Um, that's quite typical of this novel. At the same time, the policemen also bring a sense of menace and, you know, rather as Harold Pinter used to be called the, com the comedy of menace. Uh, there's a comedy of menace um, in this novel with these, these policemen who, as well as being wacky and comic and silly, are quite sinister, quite dangerous too, um, and represent obviously the law and the state and in a, in a rather um, arbitrary kind of authority which sort of could suddenly threaten to hang you when you haven't committed a crime. Um, and so I think that's another reason why I mentioned the name Kafka. I mean Kafka we associate with strangeness and arbitrariness and nightmarish and dreamlike uh, narratives but also we associate them with arbitrary power and the the law and the difficulty of being entangled with sort of state apparatus and I think that there's a version of that going on here um, as well. At the same time it's all very Irish so uh, it takes those elements and puts them very much into an Irish context, an Irish landscape that uh, the people are you know digging turf out of the bog uh, on the horizon and so on um, but also um, Irish idiom in the language and that's another really important thing. The book is written in English, uh, there's no actual Irish language in it but of course um, English as spoken and written in, well certainly as spoken in Ireland in, in modern times is uh, different from what we might call standard English. It, uh, it could be Hiberno-English and uh, dialects and different varieties of the English language which were inflected with Irish life and with the influence of, of the Irish language itself. The Irish language was uh, you know, somewhat killed off by uh, British colonialism uh, but um, 
in some ways uh, survives through its influence on English as it is spoken in Ireland. So um, that kind of Hiberno-English influence is coming through in the language, but in a very peculiar way. It's not just sort of uh, stage Irish and not just writing the way that people actually talk in Ireland, like, say, Roddy Doyle, we might think of him doing that. It's, it's more strange than that, like most things in this novel. It's more weird than that and uh, very fanciful, uh, full of uh, odd words and odd f uh, phrases and constructions of speech. Um, it's very Irish, but it's also very surreal. And th the language is a very big part of, of that effect too. Thanks, Joe. It sounds like it's going to be a very interesting event, a chance to get to know a new author for those that aren't familiar with uh, Flann O'Brien and a chance to delve deeper into this fantastical work for those that already do know him a bit. On this podcast, we've given you a little insight into two of the events that are going to be taking place in Arts Week. But don't forget, there are over 50 events on a wide range of topics. So please do look at the online programme at www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash Arts Week. And we look forward to seeing you at our events then. <laughs>